Hello, everybody. We are doing a series, actually a study on the book of Romans. And our focus is really on chapters 3 through 8. Last week, we started looking at the first section of Romans that we're not going to go through as deep as we will once we get to chapter 3. And we're calling it the bad news. And uh, because we talk about how sinful we are and the consequences of sin. And why talk about the bad news so much? Well, sometimes you can't see the good news until you really know the bad. In fact, uh, a couple examples we used last week. Uh, if you go into a very lighted room and there's a light, and uh, but it's uh, you know it's 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 daylight out, outside and everything, then it's going to be you're not going to notice that light that much. But if it's all dark and you turn the light on, yes, you know that you, the light shines forth in a much more contrasting way, doesn't it? Or another example we gave is a person who is just really enjoying life. He's in a, he's in a nice, um, you know, uh, blue, calm, warm water at the beach. And he thinks, oh, this is great. But what he doesn't know is that there's a ring of sharks around him. That's the bad news. And so sometimes we need to hear the bad news, don't we? So Romans 1 which we talked about last week, talks about the way that sin just leads to more sin. In fact, it kind of gets faster and faster and faster. And, uh, and it all begins when we decide, and it's usually a decision, not to give thanks to God and not to honor God. And so what happens, it begins to start kind of coming down. It's a avalanche or a mudslide that just keeps going further and further. It's a downward spiral. And that's what we kind of see in Romans 1. And it's true for individuals. It's true for societies. It's true for institutions. It's true for cultures that we are on a downward spiral. Sure, there's variations of that downward spiral, but all are subject to this slippery slope. Even though we might could say that, you know, that it's not always even observed by outside, um, you know, uh, observers. Sometimes it's something that's happening in our heart and nobody even sees. And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. So today we're going to go Romans 2, all of chapter 2, through Romans 3, verse 20. Like I said, some of the Romans before and after this chapters 3 through 8, we're going to... Um, we're going to be looking at a uh, at, in a much more brief way, and um, so I'm going to be talking about this as a whole, not necessarily verse by verse. We are, of course, we're going to mention verses, and uh, and certainly it would be a valuable study to go verse by verse. It's just that's really not the purpose of this particular study. So in Romans one two in the first part of three, we see that Paul is building an argument here. He wants us to know that everyone has sinned and is facing the consequences of sin. There are no exceptions. All of us are in desperate need of a salvation that can really only be found in Jesus Christ, right? He is building a case just like a lawyer would be building his case. In fact, uh, Paul actually uses, in, in Greek, there's a lot of just legal terminology as he kind of goes through this whole section. So at this point, what he's trying to prove is that we all need the gospel. 
And in these three chapters, or almost three chapters, Paul is addressing really three categories of people. And everyone kind of fits into these three categories. Although I should probably kind of say that what he says about one category of person, people certainly applies to the others and vice versa. There's a lot of overlap. But basically, he's saying that everyone fits into these categories and he makes a case for all three. All are unrighteous. All are sinful. There are no exceptions. So the first category, and this is the one we looked at last week, you could call those those who are noticeably enslaved to sin. In other words, the people around them, or at least close to them, they know they are kind of slipping. They're just kind of losing control. They're on a they're on this downward spiral, and it's going faster and faster. And by the way, these are people who they're getting trapped. Sometimes it's through addictions, and they begin sliding on this downward spiral. And once that slide begins, it's almost impossible outside of God to be able to climb back out. And the spiral continues to go down, 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 just like an avalanche or a mudslide. And the result is a loss of conscience. It's a deprived uh, mind. And we could say that our society is going down this path and it's carrying with it many, many people like an avalanche does. Now, in order, we didn't say this last week, but I should probably say this. In order to reach people who find themselves slipping down, 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 we must have compassion. Just like Jesus, when we read the Gospels, he showed compassion on people who were, who were uh, you know, falling down this spiral of sin. And without that true compassion, we're never going to be able to throw them the lifeline that they need to be rescued. And of course, that lifeline is the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And as we said last week, all of us really are following this trajectory with variations. And sometimes it's more visible. Sometimes it's just something we see in our heart. Okay. That's the first category we talked about last week. The second category is the moralist. And we see this person described in Romans 2, verses 1 through 16, more or less. And the moralist is a good person who prides himself that, after all, he's better than others. He looks down and despises the wicked people, the people who are kind of slipping down this, uh, this slide that we were talking about last week. And he says, I'm better than them. If I compare myself with others, I'm okay. Actually, I'm doing pretty good. And often these are people who trust in their education or maybe their successful career or maybe their good family. These are good people, which all of us want to be, you know. And there's certainly good people around the world in every culture. But there's several problems with the moralist. First of all, their righteousness is relative. It is compared to others, not compared to God. They still are sinful, just not quite as sinful. Pride, self-righteousness, greed, selfishness still live within the person. 
In fact, uh, Romans 2.8, it talks about the uh, selfishly ambitious. Now, ambition can be good, but if it's self-centered, it's not good. And many times, the moralists, they are selfishly ambitious. Now, sure, the moralists, even though maybe there may be these things, you know, judging others and pride and things like that, maybe... They look good on the outside because they've learned the charm of putting a good on a good facade or a good front. But deep within, sin has just as strong of a hold. In fact, judging others becomes a way to keep feeling secure in their in who they think they are. But the judging itself becomes an enslaving sin. They have to judge others and they have to keep that up for them to kind of feel good about themselves. And by the way, sometimes, in fact, often, they'll point to even Christians. Well, you know, I'm better than this Christian and this Christian. And you know what? They may be, you know, sadly, you know, uh, at least on the outside, they may be living a more moral life than a lot of people who've just come to Christ or they're struggling. And so they can point out, well, you know, I do I need God? I mean, I'm better than most of those Christians anyway. But again, the righteousness is relative. A second problem is that even without God, all of us have a sense of right or wrong because God's made us that way, right? We put up standards, even if we dismiss God's law, we put up standards of what we think is right or wrong. Everyone does because, like I said, God made us that way. And the moralist, like everyone else, actually starts to fill the standards that they put up themselves. And so what happens? They lower it a little bit. And you know what? Eventually they start failing with that. And so it's easy to start kind of drawing on philosophy and maybe Eastern religious thinking or new humanistic thinking, somehow to adjust the standard. But it's always going downward. And the high ideals that maybe we started life with they're constantly being whittled down by some type of, of uh, intellectual gymnastics. And that's why they're kind of drawn to some of these other things. I think a third thing, problem, is that the moralist must develop a means to appease his or her conscience. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, we're talking about the moralist, you know, the good people, do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending themselves. And that's what our conscience does. It will either accuse us or sometimes it defends our actions. And so even without the law, we all have a conscience, don't we? And because God put it in place. And so we have to deal with that conscience. And our conscience is going to cause us to, like I said, it's either convict us, it's going to accuse us. Or many times the moralist starts using the conscience to defend itself. I'll give you an example. Dealing with guilt. Now, guilt, I know, is a bad word in our society. It's led to blame shifting. Therefore, a person with maybe an anger issue 
has to put the blame on someone else if he's not going to deal with it himself. And so he's going to blame his parents or his spouse or his boss or someone. The reason he's anger, angry is because other people have kind of just un, un, uh, unjustly have treated him wrong. And so, of course, he's angry, you know. And uh, so, but that becomes a way, you know, this blame shifting to defend the negative things that are going on inside of us that we can't control. Actually, much, or I won't say much, some of the counseling business today thrives on being able to help a person realize that it's not really your fault, it's someone else's. Please don't feel guilty. Now, not everyone says that that's in the counseling business. There's a lot of good counseling, I know, especially Christian counseling. But there is a lot of this, let's kind of put the guilt somewhere else. But sometimes God wants to use guilt to help us face ourselves. Now, let me kind of say this, that there are times when guilt is not good. It's unnecessarily weighing us down. It's an unnecessary guilt. Romans 8, which we'll talk about probably another couple of months from now, it talks about that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And condemnation and guilt, you know, they kind of come together. But God also uses guilt to show us the ugly things inside of us that we might what? Cry to him for help, which leads to repentance. So this is the moralist. This is the second category of people. And, uh, and, and, you know, I was probably, I can probably relate to the moralist because, I mean, I came to the Lord. Well, I gave, I first gave my life to the Lord when I was 10 years old. But then when I was in high school, God wasn't really that important in my life. And, uh, and I was a good person. And I prided myself on being a good person. In fact, I can even remember like probably like in my 10th grade year, I would kind of envision that I was in a race and I had to be ahead of everyone else, you know, as far as my grades, as far as popularity, as far as being nice, you know, being liked and all that. And, uh, or sometimes I would kind of maybe, I would kind of imagine I'm kind of, I, I, I can still remember this. <laughs> And, and I would think about this constantly. That it's like king of the mountain. I had to be on the mountain. And anyone else who kind of gets close to me, somehow to kind of, I had to push him back. And that's the problem with the moralist, the good person, is that deep down they're struggling. They have to keep, it's, it's always a game of comparing yourself to someone else. And so you always have to judge others. And if you have to, you have to kind of maybe give them a kick to kind of push them downhill a little bit to kind of stay on top. And so that's the problem with the moralist. Then there's the third category is are the religious people. And that's the last half of Romans 2 verses 17 through verse 29. And I'm using this word um, differently from the way some people may use it. I know some people use the word religious meaning Christian. Oh yeah, he's, uh, he's real religious, you know, and that's a compliment, you know, uh, but I'm using it in a more negative sense in that man is trying to please God in his own efforts. 
And you might say, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Aren't we supposed to try to please God? Well, no, because if I try to please him in order to gain acceptance, the big problem is that I can't do it. I can't please God. And really, religion, and the way I'm using it, fits most religions. But it doesn't fit biblical Christianity. Specifically, in Romans 2, Paul is talking about religious Jews. They trusted in their devotion to the law for being right with God. And the case is built here, like a lawyer, Paul's doing this, that unless one obeys perfectly all the law, one still is unrighteous. In fact, the law wasn't designed to make us righteous, which is a topic we'll get to a little bit later in Romans. But it's not just the religious Jews that are religious. There are religious Christians today as well. They trust that because they were born into a Christian home, or that they go to church, or that they know all about God, or that they try to follow the Bible, that they are right before God. So just like the religious Jews, these people likewise are failing to live up to the standards of God's word, of the law. And the result is that we defend ourselves in, by comparing ourselves with others. Well, I, I do it better than he does, or I do it better than she does. I know, I, I, know I, I don't do it perfectly, but I'm a lot better than, than they are. And so the result is we're always comparing ourselves or we're becoming self-righteous like the Pharisees or like the moralists. You know, there's a growing movement among Jewish people today, which, by the way, has been foretold in the scriptures. Many of them are coming to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And I think what we're talking about today really kind of uh, is... Uh, is is kind of describes what's happening because what because many of these jewish especially young people they are withdrawing from judaism because all these laws and rules i can't do it it doesn't make sense and so when they hear about jesus yeshua you know uh the messiah says that i became the righteousness for him all of a sudden they think that makes a lot of sense because why would God want me to kind of live under a system that I'm constantly failing at? And this is one of the things that's kind of driving this movement uh, toward Jesus among Jews, especially younger people. Now you might ask, so is there any advantage of growing up in a Christian home? You know, with God's word? Of course there is. For one thing, being devoted to the principles of God's word can keep us from feeling falling headlong into that downward spiral that's described in Romans 1. It it kind of it doesn't stop the the slide, but it at least puts the brakes on it a little bit and it convicts us and it, we we see our own sin. And so we can respond to God and his gift of righteousness, which we'll start talking about next week. So anyway, here's the bottom line. We're all unrighteous, very much so, no exceptions. And we're talking about those who obviously are and visually are enslaved to sin, the moralist, the religious person, all are unrighteous.
actually, a case could be made that the worst category could be the moralist or the religious person. Because we think we're okay if we're in those categories. After all, we're better than most. And the truth is that we don't get righteous just by being better than most, being better than the others. Jesus encounters this problem in his dealings with people a lot. One example is Luke chapter 5, 9. And Levi, or Matthew, gave a big reception for him in his house. And there's a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were, who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not caught, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I think that's, that's the key. When we see ourselves as sinners, then we put ourselves as a candidate to receive what God has for us. If we see ourselves as righteous, there's no need for God. There's no need for what Jesus did at the cross for us. So it's very, very important that we see ourselves as we really are. And by the way, Jesus had a number of conversations with, with people about this same thing, didn't he? The enemy of God is religion, trying to please God in our own way. It keeps so many people away. Now, I'm thankful that we're living in a day where religion, as I'm kind of defining it, is crumbling. It's crumbling for Christians. It's crumbling for Jews. We just talked about it. It's, cr it's crumbling for Muslims. And for that, I'm grateful. And yes, sometimes when I see our Christian society that kind of gives us a false sense of security crumble, yeah, there's part of me that it's sad, but in another way, in another way, I'm kind of grateful because we're, we can see ourselves as we really are. And that's what's kind of happening within Judaism. By the way, that's kind of what's happening uh, with, uh, Islam, within Islam too. There are many people, and I know we hear about all the radicals in the media, but listen, there is a movement of many Muslims coming to know Jesus. And why is that? Because Islam is crumbling, you know? And just as Judaism is, or at least the religious part of it, and even religious Christianity is crumbling. And so that's a good thing. Now, it's true that Christians are often kind of lumped in with the religious ones. And so it's kind of a delicate time. I understand that. But I think it also makes it more important than ever that we are living the life of Christ and therefore giving credibility to his teachings. Okay, let's take a quick look at how Romans builds this case. And I'm just going to kind of just mention some of these verses that, some of the verses that we've already, I probably already referred to one way or another. Romans 2, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. You know, Jew, Gentile, moralist, religious person, no partiality. It's not like God, well, you grew up in a Christian home, so I'm going to be partial to you. 
we all have to face the issues that Paul is bringing up in these chapters. Then verse 11 and 12, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but doers of the law that will be justified. In other words, you know, if we're going to follow the law, just because I have the law and, you know, and I talk about it, doesn't mean that that makes me righteous unless I keep it 100%. And of course, we all know that's impossible. No one's been able to do that. I mean, even Paul, who at one time in his life prided himself in being a Jew of the Jews, zealous for the law, you know, if anyone came close to, to uh, you know, obeying the law perfectly, it was probably Paul. But he describes later on in Romans, in Romans 7, how he still, deep down in his heart, he was falling short on such things as thou shalt not covet. And so he was, he was, uh, he, he knew that there was something inside. And so he was frustrated because he couldn't do it perfectly. And then God revealed to him the righteousness of God, which was a game changer. Romans 3, verse 9. And this is Paul talking like a lawyer. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then his conclusive argument, verses 10 through 18, is really just a collection of just Old Testament verses, you know, just little phrases, just to kind of show that. Even God's word in the Old Testament says that we're basically, we're all, we're, 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 we all need help. Let me just kind of read it here. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's almost like he's going bang, 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 just with all these verses, just concluding that, you know what? We've all sinned. There's none who is righteous. There's none who does good. Even though you may be better than other people, you still have come up short. You have fallen short, actually, he says a little bit later. And so his final statement in verse 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. In other words, you don't have anything to say. And all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Justified, remember we said, be made righteous. You know, that no flesh will be made, you know, righteous. For through this law comes the knowledge of sin which he talks about a little bit later that, you know, the purpose of the law is to 
show us our sin, to expose, is to be a light that exposes our darkness. It's not supposed to be something that we, that we by, by, by obeying it perfectly, we're going to make it because we can't do it. So, again, the conclusion of these chapters, all of sin, all fall, all fall short, and the wages of sin is death, period. And therefore, we all deserve some of the words that are used, wrath, judgment, eternal death. One other thing I want to mention, there's an important truth about repentance that comes up in this passage. This Romans 2, verse 4. 4 through 6, let me read it. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who, are re who will render to each person according to his deeds. Okay, he talks about the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. And this is in the context, if you read the first verses before that, he's saying, you know, you know, don't go judging others, you know, especially to try to defend ourselves. And, uh, and I think it's easy for us to do that. We Again, it gets back to this comparison type of thing. We want to feel better than everyone else. But he's saying here that God extends kindness and tolerance and patience toward all, toward others. And in fact, we're, most of us, if you're like me, I'm kind of grateful. You know, he's very tolerant. He's very patient. You know, he's very kind. But yet we don't do that to others. And, uh, and he's saying that really is the kindness of God often brings people to repentance. So why are we trying to be so judgmental and critical of others? We are doing just the opposite of God and we're preventing people from repentance. So I think that's a, uh, something we need to um, remember that we should be kind and tolerant and uh, patient toward those drowning in sin. Do we think lightly of these things? Sometimes by our actions, it seems like we do. Do we not know that the kindness of God can and should lead us to repentance? And then there's another little uh, phrase here that I think is important. It talks about our stubbornness and unrepentant hearts can actually lead us away from God. In fact, it always does, doesn't it? Stubbornness will keep us from true repentance. And I know we live in an age where sometimes I hear people, even, even Christians, you know, brag about their stubborn. Well, I'm just kind of stubborn in this, you know, and like, you know, that's, I'm kind of a, I'm a tough person because I'm kind of stubborn. Let's be careful because that stubbornness, when it comes to our own sinfulness and our outlook to God, our stubbornness and unrepentant heart can keep us away from God. True repentance comes only as we see ourselves as we really are. Sinful, selfish, stubborn, impatient, you know. Lord, open our eyes to see our sinfulness. 
So in conclusion, we've kind of seen that, I'm just gonna kind of read off some of these phrases. There is no excuse. Every one of you, he says, you know, in Romans 2, 1. Then he says a little bit later, there's no partiality with God. Another later, he says, we've already charged it. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Then we kind of read in Romans 3, it says, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. And then I like verse 19 of chapter 3, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be become may become accountable to God. Paul's still kind of talking like a lawyer, isn't he? And basically he's saying everyone, the whole world is guilty before God. The verdict, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, eternal death. And I want to ask us, do we see the magnitude of God's judgment? Do we see that we're all deserving of his judgment? If not, we'll never be, we'll never fully comprehend what Jesus did at the cross. And it's not just something right before we give our life to the Lord. It's something we need to be conscious of throughout our Christian life because we want to be receiving his grace on a continual basis. We need to be convinced that no flesh will be justified or made righteous in his sight. Okay, just a sneak preview for next time. The verse 21, it starts off with saying, but now, and uh, could there be, could there be two more refreshing words in the scriptures? But now it says the righteousness of God has been manifested. And after going through chapter one, two, most of chapter three, now to kind of hear it with all the bad news, he says, but now I've got something else to tell you. And that's when he starts talking about the good news. And that's what we're going to start next week. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we ask that you'd open our eyes, that we would see our sinfulness as it really is. Lord, we ask that your light would expose darkness inside of us. And uh, Lord, may we see our, our stubbornness and our unrepentant hearts. Lord, we want to really understand and comprehend the bad news that when we get to the good news, we're going to appreciate it and love it so much more. Thank you, Lord. Amen.